from Vernissage Health. This is Built to Lead, a show where we talk to emerging and established leaders from all levels within the healthcare sector in the hope of breaking boundaries, inspiring hope, and redirecting views on what the landscape of healthcare leadership is and can be. Welcome back to the Built to Lead podcast, an IHPME student-led initiative made to uncover what it takes to be a great leader in today's healthcare system. I'm Megan Perrin, a student in the MHSC and Health Administration program at IHPME, and I'm joined today by my co-host, IHPME and MHSC alumnus, Matthew Goldburn. Our last episode focused on the reflective and analytical mindsets in conversation with Simone Harrington and Jan Campbell. Today, we will be exploring the worldly mindset, which relates to managing context, as well as the collaborative mindset, relating to managing relationships. We will be joined by Simone Tungo and Sean Gubrin. Simone is a highly renowned and award-winning community leader with 30 years experience in community-based not-for-profit and public sector organizations. She is currently the CEO at Vibrant Healthcare Alliance. And prior to joining Vibrant, she was previously the Vice President Resident Community Services at Toronto Community Housing, the Director of Community Development Integration at Mount Sinai Hospital, and Executive Director of the Parkdale Community Health Centre. Shalom is a philosopher in residence at Baycrest Health Sciences. His diverse and international career includes being the founding president of Patients Canada, a patient-led and patient-governed charity dedicated to bringing the patient voice to healthcare. He was also a fellow of the King's Fund in the UK and a policy advisor and consultant in various capacities. He's a strong patient advocate and author with his latest book, The Mechanical Patient, Finding a More Human Model of Health, which was released in 2018. Let's first look at the collaborative mindset. Collaboration is about people and how we manage those relationships. Mintzberg and Gosling refer to two different ways of managing in their article, a heroic or a more engaging style. As you can imagine, a leader with the former, more heroic style will likely address things and end their statements with, because I say so, while a leader with a more engaging style is more inclusive and really looking at, if we dream, we can do. Engagement is fundamental to the collaborative mindset and entails building commitment amongst the team and people you're working with. That means listening more and talking less, embracing shared leadership practices, and treating people on your teams as more than just a resource. The weight of responsibility and success of a project, program, or organization does not sit on the shoulders of a single person. Real success is a result of the natural distribution of those responsibilities across an organization or partners. The collective is definitely stronger than any one leader or individual can be. So let's first go to Simone, who explains what the collaborative mindset means to her and how it relates to her leadership style. In my case, I rely on that tremendously because in the work that we do in healthcare, solving complex problems, reducing barriers for people to access services, this is something that does take that sort of collaborative village uh, approach, if you will, because you know all of us need to think through how to address some of those barriers in the system that you know create. Uh, disadvantage for vulnerable communities who are accessing the services. So really talking to the frontline teams, working with them collaboratively to address those type of issues, other systemic barriers is really critical to what I do. And because the team is usually on the front line dealing directly with the clients and interfacing with them, they actually have a greater pulse on the community and the feedback from them usually informs the directions I take at the policy level or when I'm looking to develop business cases to apply for additional funds. So the collaborative mindset is really instrumental to my work and to how I approach leadership. 
I love that adage, it takes a village, since it rings so true in many aspects of life, as well as in healthcare. And a village can take many different forms. One such example of people coming together and creating a new village is an organizational merger. Next, Simone explains how her organization, the Vibrant Healthcare Alliance, came to be from two different legacy organizations and how they work together across the care continuum. The common focus of the two organizations was on people living with physical disabilities. So each uh, legacy organization provided services to that specific population. And um, coming together has been really important in order to build that one team, one culture that we adopt the collaborative mindset internally and understand the different sides of our services and our business and how they connect to each other, obviously for the main goal of providing more, you know, integrated holistic care to the clients that receive services from Vibrant. So internal collaboration is critical. So we've had a chance to really put this to the test particularly in the COVID environment where, you know, we have people in residential settings who are in communal environments who, you know, from time to time, the primary healthcare team will need to go on site to conduct testing or to lead the vaccine initiative. So we've really seen how, you know, the, the, the internal collaboration framework works really well. Understanding that each person in this organization plays a significant role. It really doesn't matter uh, what, what your job task is or your specific job title is, but we all need to work together to create an environment, you know, from our employee perspective, that is a safe, harmonious, healthy work environment. And from a client perspective, you know, we want to make sure that we're providing high quality care to people who with complex needs who come to us for services. So very, very important internal collaboration as well as external. We are, you know, a system partner in a healthcare environment. We provide, you know, services in our head office in North Toronto. So mostly in the North Toronto area, as well as GTAY for people who have physical disabilities who need primary care. So GTA wide, we're well known for providing those services. So just being able to collaborate with external partners to make sure that if there are services we don't offer here under our interdisciplinary team model, we can have you know, clear referral pathways out into the community where we can support people to access services through other community agency providers. That is a particular important to us. Also, you know, we have a particular expertise at Vibrant. So we're always looking for opportunities to work with partners to translate that knowledge out into other organizations to build capacity, but also for us to learn new things and new ways of, of conducting our business through those collaborations as well, as we you know begin to become part of communities of practice for different you know, topic areas, it is really important to approach it from that collaborate, collaboration mindset because I think we're not an organization that could be a standalone entity. I mentioned earlier, we're part of a system. And so understanding our role vis-a-vis -vis the role of our, our, our partners, the role of each organization plays in, in providing quality care, that's really important to us. Working in healthcare means being a player in a much larger system. It's evident when organizations and leaders work in silos rather than what we're seeing now in a shift towards greater collaboration and integration, which is demonstrated to lead to better outcomes in all aspects of the quadruple aim. One key skill that leaders need to cultivate is about building partnerships, which Simone states isn't always intuitive. So purposefully partnering to me means that when you, you bring together, you know, groups of people or, or a partner 
you desire to work with to impact, you know, a particular, you know, outcome for clients, it's really important that you kind of talk through that relationship, right? It's a relationship. You talk through how it's going to work, who's bringing what to the table. You understand the power dynamic within that relationship, right? So as someone who now works in community, but have previously worked in hospital, uh, when I worked in hospital at Mount Sinai Hospital, that was my job, right? <laughs> Director of Community Development and Integration, where I was all about identifying, you know, partnerships and, you know, meaningfully and purposely partnering with community in order to address, you know, some of the pain points within the hospital system and improve access. So that was a, a big issue there, right? Just me learning about, you know, the importance of naming that power dynamic when you're a community organization, small nonprofit, you're partnering with a hospital, there's a big, <laughs> there's a big uh, delta there in terms of who's holding the power within the system. And, you know, important to speak to the speak to that issue, have that difficult conversation about, you know, who is in the best position to influence based on, you know, their vantage point, based on the power they're holding. How can you give up some of that power as a hospital to take the lead from your community agency partners, for example? And so those are the, the things that I would think are very important about when we're thinking about partnership, that it should be something that it's not necessarily all about the paper agreement that we signed to say, you know, here's an MOU that, you know, describes the partnership, that the ongoing, you know, checkpoints need to be embedded in, in, in the relationship so that you can make sure that the, the partnership is on track, that, you know, the partners are all feeling comfortable and, you know, people feel like they have an equal opportunity to contribute, that type of thing. I would say that is an important uh, component of partnering and partnering in an equitable way. I would also say, you know what, we have to, you know, walk the talk, right? So we talk about concepts like, oh, patient or client co-design, right? And then, you know, we kind of go down a, a certain path and we're off with our program plans. And then as an afterthought, we think, oh, did we forget to include the client or the patient voice? And then we bring them in, right? So by virtue of the fact that we're saying that we want to co-design systems, you know, with patients and clients, it really means that they need to be in the conversation from the get-go, right? So from as soon as we start out of the gate, we need to include them. And we know also when we include patients in, you know, conversations with service providers, we know there's a power dynamic there, right? And so we have to make sure that we think through that very carefully. It's not about just bringing that one patient with the loudest voice to the table and including them. We need to, again, also make sure we have a diversity of representation with many patient voices, right? Because people experience our service differently based on the privilege or, you know, how, how they're able to access those services. So we want to make sure that we have diverse voices and we want to make sure we have the proper supports in place to, to encourage the patients and support them to be able to contribute to that co-design work or that conversation that we're having. So again, these are, are things that need to be think thought about purposefully and not just kind of done as a kind of afterthought or off the side of our desk, but to include people from the ground up when we're developing a program, building out a program to listen to them to take their feedback very seriously and critically, you know, to learn from them as we're going through the process. I mean, you know, for all the years I've worked in healthcare, the whole system is designed around the provider, definitely not around the patient. So like, this is actually something that is a disruption, right? So when we're talking about code design, it's a disruption from what we know and from the status quo. So we'll have to be able to, you know, kind of take stock 
and safeguard ourselves from going back to the old mental models and the old way of doing things and really figure out how to, you know, meaningfully uh, work with patients and accept that, you know, they are are, are, are are contributors to a process and can be very helpful in terms of designing a system that, you know, meets their needs. So I think uh, those are the, the, the considerations I would make when I'm thinking about partnership, when I'm thinking about uh, patient engagement. And, you know, I think there are hopefully a lot of other people kind of thinking in the same way. And this is one of the ways that, that things are going to change. You know, when we're looking at things like uh, hours of access to services for patients, right? And usually those hours of access are determined around, again, the provider's schedule, right? So when I get feedback from some of our clients, you know, they are very clear that, okay, opening on the weekends and the evenings work for them. And specifically, if you're opening on the weekends, a Sunday works for them because some of them are working, you know, in context where they're living caregivers, like they're, you know, literally working, you know, Saturday to Saturday, you know, this type of thing. So really trying to take that lead from, from the patients, I think is, is critical. And those are the factors that I believe are going to result in the necessary changes to the healthcare system that will be required to really serve the population well out in the community and keep them out of the hospital environment, which is the most expensive point of care, as you know, uh, within our healthcare system. What a great conversation with Simone. The power dynamics between not only organizations, but across providers and patients is so key. Ensuring an equitable lens and shifting the system from provider-focused to patient and person-centered will take disruption and changing the way that we think about co-design, patient engagement, and partnership, and who gets to be involved. The worldly mindset builds nicely off the collaborative mindset because it requires engaging a wide range of different people, cultures, and personalities. And to effectively lead or manage this mosaic of individuals, it demands an understanding of the world around the organization. Leaders who embrace the worldly frame of mind can operate in diverse organizations and or region as a result of greater cultural and social insights. The intention is really for leaders who see the big picture through managing the local context and starting from the ground up rather than the top down, as well as leaders who are concerned with the social, political, and economic issues that surround organizations. One of the misconceptions of the worldly mindset is that it is synonymous with globalization. While there may be some overlap, there are clear distinctions. Shalom Globerman gives his take. My view is that looking at the different cultures and the different uh, attitudes that people have towards the groups that they belong to and the different places they have in groups is going to be a, a critical factor in understanding how we, we treat people in health. Uh, probably the best primary care in the world is in Cuba. It's not so much that they have a lot of top doctors, it's they have a lot of bottom doctors, that the way the Cuban healthcare system works is that primary care is delivered by a person who graduates from medical school and is responsible for taking care of 500 people. That's their role. And the 500 people that they take care of, they that they're, are all in families. They're responsible for treating everyone in the families and for visiting them in their home at least twice a year. That responsibility is the over-responsibility, recognizing that people belong firstly to family groups and that their health is dependent upon the health of the family. 
not just the health of themselves. And then thinking in larger terms, we understand that the health of families is to a certain extent dependent upon the health of the communities that they live in as well. So the doctors in Cuba who deal with primary care deal with primary care in terms of the social structure and the that people live in and recognize that their social conditions are at least as important for their health as their physical. Having primary care providers working closely to the community enables a bottom-up approach rooted in the determinants of health. This concept of comprehensive primary health care delivered by organizations like Vibrant Healthcare Alliance looks not only at the individual, but also at community and populations. So while understanding that global and worldly are not synonymous, what are the differences then, Matthew? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines global as all-embracing about the world, while the worldly is defined as the affairs of the world. And as stated in the article, it brings together the sophisticated and practical experiences of this world that we live in. And the worldly mindset is more about the specific conditions rather than the general context. So similar to your grandmother's quilts, if your grandmother knits, the world resembles a patch quilt, an analogy used by Mitzberg and Gosling to convey the cultural diversity we should seek to understand. If we look at the worldly mindset in the context of the global COVID-19 pandemic, it's evident that there are widening chasms of inequity. It also demonstrates how many movements have made it evident that community and sense of belonging are intrinsic to our sense of self and to our well-being. And, and that's become very clear during the pandemic when we see that people of different groups uh, have tremendously different health, health outcomes uh, in the pandemic. And, and the other thing that we discover that we discovered during the pandemic is that people in different groups want to get together, desperately want to get together. So we have huge rallies of Black Lives Matter, and we also have huge rallies of Trumpists. And that suggests that our relationship to communities is very critical to understanding ourselves and our health. Simone also speaks on the lessons learned and the opportunity that presents itself during this time. It's really important for them to pay attention to, you know, the, the uh, I want to say the population health, you know, issues and the inequities that exist within that. These are historical issues. They're systemic you know, barriers. And so very important to have a really good understanding of those and how they create disadvantage for some of our populations. This is really important. And also, you know, leading from a place of embracing diversity. You know, you want to have diversity reflected throughout your organization at all levels. You want to bring it in at the governance level. So your board of directors are diverse. Your senior leadership team is diverse. Your frontline staff is diverse because that makes for, I think, the, uh, an optimal environment for providing services from a place where people, when they come for services, can see some representation of themselves. The pandemic has taught us a lot that we can no longer overlook the inequities certain populations face. During this pandemic, we have started to address some of these issues while we continue to fight this virus. Our next clip provides a sneak peek from our next episode's conversation with Sharan Isaacs, who shares a powerful story that ties in both the worldly and collaborative mindset. Success is never one alone. Sharan's vaccine equity strategy is a great example of how both a large-scale operation and the community-based initiative can achieve its outcome. I would say there are two bookends to the work that we've done in, in, in supporting a vaccine equity strategy across the city. The one bookend is the homebound vaccinations. 
It is going door to door. It takes approximately about 45 minutes to administer, to prep, you know, travel, administer a vaccine to our, one of our homebound residents. So there are over 8,000 residents in the city that required a homebound vaccination. And then on the opposite side, a Scotiabank event where we're looking to vaccinate a thousand people every 20 minutes. And so at, at, when we were able to work out all of the uh, issues, we did get to that rate. Uh, about 4 p.m. on the Sunday, we were vaccinated about a thousand vaccinations uh, every 20 minutes. And it's absolutely two different approaches, two different mindsets. When we look at homebound and then we look at our mobile clinics, I think it's really, again, back to listening to uh, the community leaders, listening to the caregivers and understanding the challenges uh, and what they see as the uh, potential solutions. What we brought was capacity. Uh, and when we talk to any of our long-term care homes, our congregate settings, our community pop-up clinics, uh, we are guests in these communities. And we always want to remind each other and, and, and keep that at the forefront. And we're here to help provide uh, some support. Uh, but the, the community ambassadors, uh, the leaders, uh, within these neighborhoods were really the ones who understood uh, the challenges uh, and the opportunities, and we need to listen, and then we'd frame a solution. And so when we first started vaccine events, you saw a lot of mass vaccination clinics with pre-online bookings being set up. But our community leaders, when we were moving on our vaccine equity strategy, said that that was not a low barrier way to get people vaccinated, that they preferred uh, pop-up clinics unscheduled and so we wanted to listen very closely. And we also wanted to listen location and not necessarily had to be in a large area. It could be a basketball court, it could be a community center. Uh, all that wasn't uh, my idea or my team's idea. It was the ideas of, of the individuals and groups who were there to serve and support. Uh, I think that's what uh, really supported those events on the home and pop-up clinics. When it came to Scotiabank, uh, it was more around the mindset around collaboration and partnership. And, what I've learned uh, in my two decades in the public health system is that none of us can do this alone. And it are the partnerships that we've created over the decades uh, and in the partners we created over the last six months that culminated in Scotiabank. Scotiabank didn't happen because we had an idea and then eight days later we made it happen. It happened because we built friendships and partnerships over the last seven months over our vaccine campaigns from long-term care all the way through the various parts of the city where we met partners, we met individuals, and we built relationships. And we called on all the partners. Every single mobile vaccination team in the seating was represented on that ice rink that day of Scotiabank. All the relationships, all the logistics that we were building and uh, maturing all came to be. Uh, and you can't go, I remember day one of my mobile vaccination efforts, we were happy to vaccinate 200 people in the day at a long-term care home. And then if someone told me that, you know, six months later, you'd be doing 26,000, you know, again, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, so a lot of a layers of complexity, but most importantly, people that were willing to work together. And I'm very proud of uh, the network and collective impact that we created that day and the momentum that we created uh, throughout uh, the subsequent weeks. What a lot of people don't probably didn't appreciate the day of Scotiabank was that we also had many, many pop-up clinics going forward with Pfizer. Scotiabank was a Moderna uh, clinic because uh, we had a lot of Moderna supply, but we knew a lot of our priority populations uh, wanted Pfizer. And at the same time that day, we had Pfizer clinics. We had enough supply for those clinics and those are also moving and we're able to capitalize on the excitement of vaccine day. So Scotiabank was in the headlines, but what I'm most proud of is that we had many, many clinics 
in our prioritized communities getting the vaccine of their choice to help support them getting their second dose uh, in a timely way. That is such an inspirational story. Being intentional about building a network through the collective impact of partnerships supports equitable health. And this starts from the ground up. This ground up approach is a common theme and sentiment shared amongst several of our guests this season. Especially in today's context, it often seems that more than ever, leaders need to build their capacity as it relates to worldly and collaborative mindsets. The collaborative mindset is critical to bring diverse people and sciences together to resolve the current pandemic at the world level. Instead, we see leaders thinking competitively, which is the opposite of collaboration. Collaboration takes a win-win stance, and competitiveness takes a win-lose stance. There is also too much narrow thinking and acting and only doing what serves individual countries, regions, and communities. Again, the time is now for leaders to think and work collaboratively. The worldly mindset is what allows leaders to think and act for the best in the long term and have a broad, future-oriented approach in their work. Think of the worldly mindset as the big picture, where leaders need to think broadly in terms of sustainability, not just thinking about solutions or actions in the short term, but over the long run. For instance, leaders need to take action and consider climate change in relation to global health, equity, considering population health, and other overarching goals that are required to sustain the health of our world and the people, animals, and plants who live on it. So how may you utilize these two mindsets, collaborative and worldly, to foster greater engagement and understanding of individuals, the groups, and the world outside your network and organization? This podcast is a companion initiative to the Vernissage Health Dialogue Series for Health Leaders. Thanks to the generous support of our partners, Associated Medical Services, AMS, the Dalana School of Public Health, DLSPH, and the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation, IHPME, for making this podcast possible. Built to Lead is hosted by IHP alumnus Matthew Goldburn and IHPME student Megan Perrin. The music was composed by Sindhu, and this episode was edited and mixed by Madden and Mitchell Media. For more content and information, visit vernissagehealth.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of Built to Lead, make sure to follow, subscribe, leave a review, and tell a friend. We are building the health leaders of tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Madden and Mitchell Media.